0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Christian Apologist podcast. On this week's episode, we are going to be discussing morality. Is it justified? Can Christians only be moral or can atheists be moral? Can other religions be moral? Where does morality come from? Find out in this episode coming right up. So, is morality justified? What what is good? What is evil? I mean, how do we know what is good and what is evil? Where do our moral standards come from? These are good questions, but morality has to have a standard above us. If it doesn't, then there's no longer a standard, but it's a subjective opinion. And Richard Dawkins, one of the world's most famous atheists, in his book River Out of Eden on page 133, he says, there is no good and there is no evil. To Richard Dawkins, what Adolf Hitler did was not evil. Using that same logic, we can also say anything Richard Dawkins says isn't good. So why should we be listening to anything he has to say? C.S. Lewis, who was one, uh, was an atheist and then turned Christian. But the idea of knowing good and evil best, he, he said, it knowing best when he said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed to cruel and unjust. But how did I come up with this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of how straight a line is. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If atheists are right and we are just billions of years of evolved stardust molecules, then how can we justify what is right and what is wrong? If we have no objective standard of good, then anything that we perceive as good or bad is just our own personal subjective opinions. We have to have a standard beyond us for us to be able to measure what is truly right and what is truly wrong. When atheists make claims that God is immoral, what they're really saying is, this is why I hate God. But I had an atheist named Matthew argue this point one time, and he was convinced that we were all just a product of evolution. At the end of our talk, I asked him, so which molecule or cell or DNA strand is responsible for our morality? And guess what, folks? He had no answer. Now, this doesn't in any way mean that atheists can't know morality. Atheists, like Christians, know morality. We don't need the Bible to know morality. This isn't a question of ontology, that being that we know morality, but a question of epistemology, of how do we know morality. We all understand, we all know what is right from wrong and good from evil. I'm asking atheists how they can justify morality. How can they justify how they know right from wrong? Christians can justify morality because we know that morality comes from the moral lawgiver and the nature of God. He is the standard of good. But for atheists who don't believe in God, where do they think that knowing morality or knowing good and bad comes from? How can billions of years of evolution teach us what is right and what is wrong? Darwin says, With me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the conviction of man's mind, which has been developed from the mid of the lower animals, are any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey if there are any convictions in such a mind? Now, if there is no objective morality of good, then burning babies is just objectively wrong. We couldn't say that Hitler killing millions of Jews, homosexuals, Different ethnicities and people with disabilities in the Holocaust was wrong at all. It's just a matter of our opinion against Hitler's opinion. Hitler thought what he was doing was good for the human race. He saw no wrong in killing people to better humanity. If there isn't an objective morality of good, if there isn't a moral law giver, then Hitler isn't objectively wrong. He is only subjectively wrong according to people's opinions. I mean, that's just your opinion against Hitlers or Stalins or even the attackers of 9-11 in New York. There is nothing biological or chemically inside of any of us that tells us what is right and wrong. The reasons we know right from wrong is from the moral lawgiver, and he placed these morals on our hearts. And it says that in Jeremiah 31-33 and in Hebrews 8-10. He says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Biology and chemistry are descriptive in nature, but they are not prescriptive in nature. Evolution can show us what does survive, but it cannot show us what should survive. In 1991, the world was in disgust by the actions that came to light of um, of one of the of the most famous cannibals of all time, Jeffrey Dahmer. Dahmer had killed 17 people in a 13-year span. He dismembered their bodies and keeping some of them body parts as souvenirs. This was a horrific, evil thing that he had done. But when Dahmer was questioned about his actions, he stated, if a person doesn't think there's a God to be accountable to, then... What's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought anyways. I always believed the theory of evolutionist truth, that we all just came from slime. When we die, you know, that was it. There was nothing. Now, I'm not saying or claiming that all atheists are deranged lunatics like Dahmer was, but most atheists, like everyone else, have good moral values. But you can see how Dahmer justified his behavior by thinking he would never have to appeal to a morally just as God. His killings were justified to him by his subjective opinion on what he thought was right and wrong. Atheists claim that morality is the process of evolution. But here's my question to all you atheists out there, and hopefully some are listening. Suppose morality is the product of evolution. Let's just pretend for a minute that it is. If evolution, by definition, is the process of things constantly changing, then someday, maybe rape and murder will be morally good. Now, I'm sure that, that question will never be answered. Why? Because if they say no, then they're admitting not all things evolve. If they say yes, then they're showing that their logic is extremely flawed. Atheists like to say that doing good to others is good for the human species. They also say that prevailing in life means to not murder others and that help the human species to continue to flourish. But on the website, atheist.org, this is what they say. Natural selection has equipped us with nervous systems which are peculiarly sensitive to the emotional status of our fellows. Among our kind, emotions are contagious and it is only the rare psychopathic mutants among us who can be happy in the midst of a sad society. It is in our nature to be happy in the midst of happiness, sad, and, in the, and sad in the midst of sadness. It is in our nature, fortunately, to seek happiness for our fellows at the same time as we seek it for ourselves. Our happiness is greater when it is shared. Okay, but says who? Whose happiness is greater when shared with others? Hitler's happiness wasn't greater when it was shared with others. Stalin's happiness wasn't greater. Atheists can't say what is considered a greater happiness when they have no objective standard to compare it to. They are throwing around their own personal subjective opinions and assuming it's a one-size-fits-all. Now, some of what they say I do agree with, but there is a problem with their ideology. They use terms such as happiness, greater, and being kind. Where are they getting that happiness, greater, and being kind are good things? They are failing to provide proof of a good or happy gene, cell, or molecule. There is nothing inside of us biologically that shows us what happiness and kindness is or should be. For atheists, this is just all a matter of personal subjective opinion. Dahmer, Stalin, and Hitler didn't share the same opinion when it came to the murdering of innocent people. For them, happiness, greater, and goodness was the murdering of innocent lives. They believed they were doing a good thing by killing people. If you're an atheist, then what they did is just a matter of your opinion against theirs. When referring to something as being good and need to have an objective standard above your own, if there's no objective standard, then it's just a matter of your opinion when speaking to religions christians more often than not honestly atheists like to resort to plato's euthyphro dilemma now what's euthyphro dilemma plato had a dialogue and in the, the dialogue socrates asked euthyphro this question is it moral because god says so or does god say so because it's moral now this was a dilemma indeed for euthyphro either way he answered would point to God not being a just, morally good God. Unfortunately for athe- atheist, Euthyphro's dilemma has been found to be a fallacy. Why? Because God is the standard of morality. He doesn't look to a higher power to know what good morals are when he himself is the standard of such morality. The question asked by Socrates, is presuming God has to look somewhere other than himself for an answer to morality. Now, atheists can ask questions, can ask Christians, what is good then? And they can turn the same question around on us as we do use on them. But we have a short and simple answer to this. It's summed up with the philosophical notion of identity expressed symbolically as A equals A or B equals B. When one thing is identical to another, There are not two things, but only one. So when Christians speak of good, we are speaking of the very characteristics and essence of God's nature. There's not a difference in the two. Moral arguments are some of the hardest for atheists to debate about. Why? Because they have no means of recognizing where it comes from, they have no way of justifying it. Christian author Greg Kolkal puts it like this Goodness is neither above God, nor merely willed by him. Instead, ethics are grounded in his holy character. Moral notions are not arbitrary and given to caprice. They are fixed and absolute, grounded in God's immutable nature. Now, I have heard people say, if your God is the standard of morality, then count me out. And I'm like, why? Because they either misunderstood, misquoted, or they have heard wrongly what they have, what they believe to be questionable events in the Bible. Author of an atheist values, Richard Robinson said in his book, a God who was all powerful but left much misery in the world would be all benevolent. An all-benevolent God in a world containing much misery would not be an all-powerful God. A world containing a God who was both all powerful and all benevolent would contain no misery. So is God immoral for for allowing evil to exist and continue? Why doesn't God put a stop to all the evil acts? If he is the standard of morality and he puts, uh, why doesn't he put a stop to all the evil, then wouldn't that prove that he doesn't exist or that he's not immoral? That he's not moral? And it's no. Why? Because atheists everywhere love to point out what they believe is a flaw for theism, usually Christianity. And that's concerning all the evil that takes place on a daily basis. Unless you're Dawkins and you just don't believe in evil at all. But first, let's look at God getting rid of all the evil. To get rid of all the evil in the world, God would have to get rid of all of humanity. Why? Because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. None are righteous, Romans 3.10. So who would they like God to start with? Do they want him to start with themselves, with you, with me, my family, your family, his family? It's funny to me when people always mention God ridding the world of evil because they never want to point the finger at themselves. They never do. They want to point the finger at everybody else. What atheists fail to understand is even though it's logically possible for God to get rid of all the evil, which they won't like the results of that, but it isn't achievable with free will beings. Why? Because there are some things God can't do. I mean, yes, I just said that. Everyone says God can do anything, but there are some things that God can't do. You heard me correctly. God can't create a being with free will and also force them to do only good. That's no longer free will. He can't give us free will and then force us not to commit evil. He also can't give us free will and force us to love. Love can't be forced by definition, but it only given through free will. It's like saying God can't create a married bachelor. Well, of course He can't create a married bachelor. That wouldn't make sense. It's not logically achievable. C.S. Lewis said, if a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, it's also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. So by allowing us to freely love him and do good things, it also gives us the right to not love him and commit evil. Free will gives us all the rights to choose between good and evil. If he takes away our free will, he also takes away the good we have and the love we have for him and for each other. If God was to put a stop from from all people committing evil, he's ultimately removing our free will. God didn't create us to be robots and he doesn't want to force us into loving him. Forced love isn't love. A man cannot force a woman to love him if he tries she would only end up despising him john morrison a christian author a uh, author's rebuttal for this says think about evil as you would think of counterfeit currency a counterfeit is the corruption of something real you can have real currency without the existence of counterfeit but you cannot have ever have counterfeit without the real thing existing first Evil is dependent on the existence of goodness, but goodness is not dependent on evil. Goodness was here first. It is an absolute. Evil must always be thought of in a relationship with absolute goodness. I like to say that evil isn't an argument against God, but it is for God. How? Because we can have good without evil, but we cannot have evil without the good. It's like saying we can have the sun without shadows, but we can't have shadows without the sun. The same as with evil. Evil only confirms the presence of God, just like the the shadow only confirms the presence of the sun. But once again, all this explanation of good and evil is unnecessary if you're an atheist because you are using words such as good and evil and without the standard of God's moral nature... That's only your subjective opinion against everyone else's. We're going to take a quick break, folks, real quick. Give our sponsors a shout. Stay tuned. We'll be back in two minutes. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Christian Apologist Podcast. We are talking about morality, goodness, evil, if atheists can justify morality, how Christians justify morality, where does morality come from, and we left off by talking about the presence of God, and how atheists can't use words such as good and evil without it being a subjective opinion, since they don't believe in a moral standard or an objective standard of God. But, let's continue on. What about diseases and hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, and all that other worldly disaster? I mean, wouldn't that just disprove God's existence because it's all bad? No, not really. Why? Because... Let's jump into an imaginary bubble for a minute and let's just pretend cancers and diseases nor any earthly disasters ever existed. If we knew that our chances of living a much longer life was multiplied, how careless would we be with our lives? Ask yourselves that. We wouldn't be worried about much of anything because living a long life was almost a certainty. We most likely wouldn't bother to seek forgiveness until we were much older in age. And only then would we really start looking at the purpose of our own personal lives, and that probably wouldn't happen until we're in our late 70s and 80s. Not only that, but as mentioned before, we were not designed to live forever in these bodies. Natural disasters, on the other hand, happen because the earth was never meant to be a permanent home for us. It's only a temporary home. A life with God in heaven, or a life without God, which is hell, is our eternal home. J.P. Moreland says, God maintains a delicate balance between keeping his existence sufficiently evident so people will know he's there and yet hiding his presence enough so that people who want to choose to ignore him can do it. This way, their choice of destiny is really free. See, God has many times has gotten rid of evil. He did exactly what the atheists claimed they wanted him to do to prove himself as the standard of good and as God, but they still reject him. But when did this happen? Well, I don't know, maybe like in the day of Noah in Genesis 6, 5, and God saw that the wickedness of man was on earth, uh, was great, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God destroyed evil with the flood, but instead of atheists accepting him, they now call him evil and a moral monster for getting rid of evil. It's like they can't make up their mind. They also like to point out the time that God had Israel destroy the Canaanites. But once again, God did exactly what atheists said that he doesn't do, and he got rid of evil. Atheists can't make up their minds. I mean, I just want to point out that the majority of the atheist community is pro-choice. That is a fact, meaning they are completely for abortion. But let me ask all the atheists this. Why is it when God plays God, he's immoral, but when people play God by killing babies, he's a moral, it's our moral right as humans, but as God, he's a moral monster. But let's just go back to what we were saying about the Canaanites. They were not good people. When God had the Israelites kill the Canaanites, it wasn't because they were just a bunch of good people running around. They were literally performing bestiality, sexual perversions, incest, murdering, and they were burning their babies alive on the molten hot arms of their god, Moloch. The musicians were having to beat their drums extremely loud so that the parents of the babies wouldn't even have to hear their own babies screaming. So God commanded the Israelites to destroy them. And you mean, and, and I'm not talking about all of them, and that's what a lot of atheists like to say. And no, it's not all of them. How do we know that? Because destroying of the Canaanites was a command of the Old Testament, and yet in the New Testament, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, Simon, was a Canaanite, and you can find that in Matthew 10, 4, and Mark 3:18. But the Bible does say in Deuteronomy 20, 17, completely destroy them the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. So if he wasn't commanding the Israelites to destroy all of them, why would the Bible say that? Well, the entirety of the Bible isn't meant to be taken literally. We talked about this last week in one of our YouTube videos. Why? Because the Bible is written in many different styles we talked about this last week poetry songs wisdom prophecy apocalyptic parables historical metaphorical etc if i was to watch a football game and i said my team annihilated the other team would you think that i meant that my team actually killed another entire team no you would know i was speaking metaphorically the same is with the bible so when people ask if the bible is meant to be taken literally i always tell them where it's meant to be taken literally. You know, there's a great book out there by Paul Copan called Is God a Moral Monster? This is a great book. I've read it more than once, and it's uh, it's great for those that try to understand many questions, especially things of the Old Testament. He goes into much more details than I can on this podcast or on any kind of YouTube video. And the next biggest argument, though, for God and his moral standards are all the atrocities throughout the Old Testament. And this is what Paul Copan's book goes over. I mean, but every time you turn around in the Old Testament, God was giving one command after another to the Israelites. Now, many of these commands seemed like nonsense at first glance, and other commands just seemed flat out evil and cruel, honestly. But just a brief description of some of these are, you can't wear anything with a mixed thread type. Don't eat pigs. See that right there? I would I would have made a horrible candidate to live in those days. I love ham and bacon. So, thank goodness I wasn't alive back then. Don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Don't eat fat. Honestly, me and God agree on that one. I still don't eat fat, and I can't do it. I will puke. Slavery seemed to have been endorsed in the Old Testament. Many atheists also claim the Bible says if a woman's raped, she must marry the man who raped her. And the list goes on and on. Now, why would God have such bizarre commands? Well, I want to point out that these commands were not meant for everyone and for all times, but specifically commanded for the Israelites in those days. Why? Because in the Old Testament days, from the time of Moses to King Saul, Israel was in a theocracy. Now, what is a theocracy? We've gone over this many times, but I'll do it again. Theocracy is when people are governed by God or those appointed by God. Another thing is, a lot of those commands were given to separate God's holy people, the Israelites. From the rest of the world, he wanted his people to stand out among others and not to blend in. He wanted the rest of the world to know that the Israelites were his people and have different standards from the rest of them. Now, some of the commands were given to just keep the Israelites healthy. For instance, pigs. Pigs are filthy animals. As delicious as they are, they're filthy. And in those days, they didn't have refrigerators or the technology we do nowadays, and to clean and disinfect animals. So, yeah, he was trying to keep them healthy and clean. So by eating certain things, that could have definitely made them sick and die. And as far as a woman being forcibly raped and then forced to marry her rapist, that's just complete nonsense, people. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. The text they are trying to quote, and they're misquoting horribly bad, is the scripture in Deuteronomy 22, uh, verses 28 through 29. This is what it says. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, And seizes her and lies with her, and they are found. Then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. Now, what this means in modern terms is if a man finds a girl and they have consensual sex, and it's discovered, he has to marry her. Consensual sex is what that's referring to. For one, Why did they do this? Because it kept people from sleeping around. Two, it stopped men from sleeping around and then dumping women if they got pregnant. And three, this also gave women in those days financial security, because in those days, women didn't have financial security as they do nowadays. But let's look at the next verse, Deuteronomy 22, 25 through 27. But if in the open country, a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death, for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one there to rescue her. So do we see the difference in those two verses? In the last two verses, it clearly states that the woman cried out. She was not a willing participant. This was not consensual. She was raped. It's clear where the Bible stands on rape. The rapists were to be put to death, and the woman was to be left alone. In the Old Testament, it does speak of slavery. It does. Behold your horses, because we first must understand slavery in biblical times. Slavery back in the biblical days was not the same as the slavery term we think of today. Slavery wasn't race-based. It was servitude. People who owed others money but could not pay up would voluntarily work for the owners of fields to pay their debts off. That's in Leviticus 25.39. The masters were not allowed to beat, kill, neglect, nor keep the servants forever. That's in Exodus 21, uh, verses 20 through 27, Exodus 21, uh, chapter 2, I mean, verse 2, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 12, and no matter the cost owed, six years was the maximum amount of the work the masters could get from their servants. The servitude was also a way people made money to take care of their families. It was more like an employer slash employee type and relationship. If the masters, basically an employer, caused harm to their servant, basically an employee, they would have to pay. That's in Exodus 21, 20 through 27. Sometimes, even after the debt was paid, many servants would want to stay with their masters because they had become like one like the family. You can find that in Exodus 25 through 6, Deuteronomy 15, 16 through 17. There were so many people from outside of the Israelites that wanted to join with the Israelites and they they would be forced to do work. The master had to abide by the same rules, though, as if the person was an Israelite. No beating, no beating, no hitting, no killing, no mistreatment, and so forth. That's in Exodus 12 through 44. 12, uh, sorry, verse 44. Now, after wars, when the Israelites would take people captive, they were forced to work as well, but it was so that they wouldn't rally up and try to overthrow the Israelites, much like we do today when we take prisoners of war, We don't just let them in America and let them loose. We keep them so that they don't rally up. You can find that in Deuteronomy 20, verse 14, Leviticus 25, verses 44 through 46. Now, as you can see through the many examples given, slavery, the word used in the 21st century sense, nor rape was ever condoned. But once again, the book, Is God a Moral Monster?, covers all these questions, concerns, confusions, and much, much more, and much more detail than I can here. But without a universal moral standard from God, then only moral relativism applies. What's moral relativism? Simply put, whatever culture you grow up in, that's your moral compass. If your culture says it's okay to burn alive the second-born child, then it's okay. If your culture says it's normal to rape women, then that's okay. Nothing is objective. It's a very scary thought, actually. So does this evidence point to God being a moral monster, or does it show that the ones reading the Bible aren't interpreting the Bible correctly? Does the evidence point to morality being an act of evolution, or does the evidence for morality point to a moral lawgiver we call God? I'll let you decide. Y'all join us next week for another episode of the Christian Apologist Podcast every Wednesday at 8.15 a.m. I also ask that uh, you go to uh, iTunes, give us a five-star rating, leave us a review. It just helps us to get notified uh, a little easier. It helps to get uh, watched a little easier. Um, if you haven't joined our, subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, as you subscribe to our YouTube channel, hit the little bell notification, you'll be... Uh, updated or notified every time a video is posted. We post videos every Monday and Thursday. Um, Go to our Facebook page. Go to our Instagram page. We're pretty much everywhere. So go to our pages. Like them. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. God bless.